You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth Chats. Today I'm speaking with Noam Chomsky, the distinguished theoretical linguist, analytic philosopher, cognitive scientist, and public intellectual. He is Institute Professor Emeritus at MIT and Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona. Closer to Truth is presenting this four-part miniseries with Professor Chomsky. Part four now covers applications of Chomsky's linguistic theories to other fields and issues and his thoughts, opinions, reflections on closer to truth themes and big questions. So Noam, let's begin with an overview of what has been called, what you've been called, the, the basic property of language. And it's, it's three parts uh, that you've talked about, the internal computational system that has hierarchically structured, the sensory motor system that expresses through externalization, speaking, et cetera, uh, and then this internal conception system for inference, uh, interpretation planning, uh, what is, you know, we inf informally call thought. So just want to get your sense of this big picture of language. If you take a look at uh, the human species, what sharply differentiates it from any organic uh, species we know of are two things, possession of language, possession of thought in any form that we can grasp what thought is. I have two identifying features of a species. First question that comes to mind is what's their relation? Simplest relation would be identity. And in fact, that's a fair statement. It's been understood through history for millennia, actually, that language and thought are intimately related. Language has historically been called audible thought. It's the mechanism for constructing thoughts over an infinite range, which we then can access and use in our various activities. The internal nature of until the 20th century when mathematical theories of computation were developed clearly and precisely it was very different difficult to capture the essence of this system last 70 years we've been able to do it uh, what we need what is somehow coded in our brains is a finite procedure kind of like a program in your laptop, a finite procedure which generates an infinite number of hierarchically structured expressions, each of which is an expression of thought and which can be externalized into some sensory motor medium. Usually sound could be sign, could even be touch, sound is the usual one. That seems to be the basic character of language. It's not quite the instrument of thought, it is thought. We don't, we have thought insofar as we have language. In any significant sense of thought, there are a couple of dogs at my feet and they have a kind of thought, but it's a finite bounded. If I say a couple certain words I can say, which I won't say, and they'll be running to the door. Uh, it's a sort of thought, but it's not what we're doing now or what humans do normally, constructing modes, expressions that can be used for reflection, analysis, uh, planning, uh, inference, all the things that our minds uniquely do. They basically do with language or with instructions that language provides to other cognitive systems. Just as uh, the, the internal language that we have provides instructions to the articulatory system, which we can then 
pick up and use to pronounce things. Sort of similar on the side of uh, conceptual analysis, reflection, thought generally. That seems to me the general picture. So if this uh, basic property is, is really basic, uh, where and, and when did it first appear? Uh, I think you've written, uh, written so much, I'm not sure when this occurred, but you, you've said that the origin of mind-dependent word-like elements remains a, a mystery. Um, other people don't think it's a mystery, but you still think it's a mystery? Total mystery. We uh, have no idea. But we, we know a lot about it. So, for example, uh, Lila Gleitman's work died recently, outstanding cognitive psychology scientist and linguist. She, uh, her work showed that the work, that a child of maybe two or three is has an enormous knowledge of language, well beyond anything it can express, and particularly with regard to words. Children pick up words at a fantastic rate. At that age, they may be picking up one word every waking hour, pick them up on very few presentations, uh, no training, nothing like that, very little evidence. And they know the words in all of their richness and complexity. Then comes the second part, investigating the character of the words. And it turns out even the simplest ones the ones we use to refer to the things around us, have rich, complex internal structure. So there's a question, two questions, one a question of acquisition, one a question of evolution. question of right. acquisition is how infants are able to hit upon the rich, complex notions that they have mastered at a very early age with very little data, one question. The other question is, where in human evolution did this arise? Well, my own feeling for a long time was that this was lost in the mists of uh, pre-human history. I think now that that's mistaken. Uh, if these co complex concepts, even notice that even the simplest concepts, tree, uh, desk, uh, person, dog, whatever you want. Even these are extremely complex in their internal structure. If such concepts had developed in proto-human history, when there was no language, they would have been useless. They'd have been like, they would have, it would have been an accident if they developed and they would quickly have been lost because you can't do anything with them. So chances are very strong that the concepts developed within human history at a point where we had computational systems which satisfy the basic property. Well, that reduces the mystery somewhat. It means it was within the last couple hundred thousand years, which is a blink of an eye in evolutionary time. Now, anthropological research has succeeded in giving a fair amount of information about up to 20 or 30,000 30, years ago, how uh, indigenous cultures, they were quite rich indigenous cultures uh, developed and operated. So we've kind of narrowed the time window in which this evolution presumably took place. That doesn't solve the problem, but it makes it a little more feasible. Uh, it's during this era that we do begin to get complex symbolic behavior, uh, fantastic artwork, uh, evidence of complex societies and so on, roughly in this period, about 100,000 years. Would you use the term human to whatever uh primates were prior to that language uh, explosion or the, that language event? Well, these are just technical usages. Those are hominids, hominins, uh, homo sapiens, especially uh, our species, separate species. Its origins seem to be 
in the order of two to three hundred thousand years ago. Coterminous, uh, coterminal with with language. Well, that, that we don't know, but there's evidence. Prior to the appearance of Homo sapiens, there's no evidence in the archaeological record for any significant symbolic behavior, maybe a mark on a stone or something. But uh, so it's and the kind of complex behavior that seems to require language doesn't appear before Homo sapiens. So that puts one kind of bound. We have another firmer bound. Genomic analysis has now placed the separation of humans at about at least 150,000 years ago. So we're now down to a very brief period. And, and all known humans have the same language faculty. So it seems clear that the language faculty existed before the early separation of humans, which leaves a very small window. It means something pretty simple must have happened. Uh, 50, 100,000 years sounds like a large number, but not in evolutionary time. In terms of the purpose of language, it's generally assumed by evolutionary biologists that communications uh, is the primary purpose, the driver of it, uh, with analogs from animal communications, whether bird songs or monkey calls, uh, uh, that, that that evolved into human language. Uh, I think you've taken quite the opposite position, which is not unusual for you to take opposite positions, that language is more an inner mental tool as its driver or as what it was, as opposed to uh, a linear uh, evolution of communications capabilities. Well, let me first step back a step. Uh, talking about the purpose of a biological system is not really appropriate. Biological systems don't have purposes. They appear, then maybe they're put to use in one or another way. But if you look at the process of evolution, it really has three stages. The first stage is something disrupts the existing system, maybe a mutation, uh, maybe a symbiosis. So uh, sometime couple billion million years ago, a uh, billion years ago, uh, a bacterium swallowed another microorganism that led to a disruption of the system. It's the beginning of eukaryotic cells. The basis for complex life was an accident. Well, first the system gets disrupted. Then the second stage, nature tries to form the simplest, most elegant solution to how to deal with this new phenomenon. That's the second stage. The third stage is winnowing of the various things that are around, which ones are going to have higher reproductive success, natural selection. Let me take a look at the at language. The initial stage, some stage of disruption, evidently produced a recursive function, a, a computational procedure that goes on, uh, that can be coded on a computer effectively. That's what a, basically what a recursive function is. So the first stage that appeared somehow, presumably some small rewiring of the brain, uh, led to the appearance of this. Second stage, nature formed the best possible solution to how to incorporate this into the brain. Well, the goal of contemporary linguistics is to find out what that system is. But what about the winnowing stage? That never came for language. There never was any choice. Partly, maybe, because there just wasn't enough time, but partly for, probably for a deeper reason. When you look at the, when you look into this system that nature constructed in detail, you find that it's so tightly integrated, so elegantly put together, that any modification of it and the whole system collapses. 
So there was just no way to select. It looks as if selection just didn't operate for language, at least the core parts of it. It has, it certainly may operate for peripheral parts. Now, if we look back at the, so I think we can't really talk about the purpose of the system. We can talk about how it's used. Okay, now if you take a look at how a language is used, sometimes it's used for communication like you and I are doing, but that actually is a very peripheral use. Almost all of our use of language goes on all day, all of our waking hours, most of our sleeping hours is just thinking. We just can't stop. It's impo almost impossible to stop. It takes a tremendous act of will to stop thinking. That's our overwhelming use of language. Now, we don't know, we only know what's going on there from the outside. We can't introspect into it. What we call inner speech is not inner speech. It's externalized speech where the articulatories have been put on hold. <laughs> the, what's actually going on, we can only discover the way you discover how the visual system works from the outside. And that's basically what linguistics is about. I, at least the kind that interests me. Try to find out what this system is that Mother Nature put together that is used entirely for thought. Now, there are other reasons for thinking that communication is a peripheral use of language. When you look at the nature of this internal system, you find that there are conflicts between uh, computational efficiency and communicative efficiency. And in every single case, communicative efficiency is sacrificed as if nature just didn't care. It only cared about computational efficiency, constructing a beautiful internal system, which is typically the way evolution works. That's how evolution generally works, for perfectly good reasons. During the second stage of reconstruction, nature can't have any idea how the organism's going to put it to use. To take a ridiculous example, when nature was designing human beings, it didn't design ears so that they could keep masks. Okay, just didn't care. And it probably didn't care that humans could use language for communication. That's the way things seem to be developing. There is actually no, the only reason to believe that language is used for communication, which is a modern idea, incidentally, is misinterpretations of evolution. It somehow must have you language must have developed out of animal systems, communication systems. Absolutely no reason to believe that. None. And it, the evidence is overwhelmingly that it didn't. There's nothing similar to the basic elements of language, either the conceptual elements or the computational ones. Nothing similar in the animal world. Uh, animal communication differs from human use of language in radical ways. And if the course of evolution was, as I recently suge just suggested a few moments ago, it's not going to have any connection with animal communication. Now there, I should say that there's a kind of a baby talk Darwinism, which isn't evolutionary theory, that holds that any complex system must have developed in very small steps from earlier ones. Actually, Darwin himself believed that, but that's been shown to be untrue. There are many uh, sharp changes in evolutionary history from disruptions of one kind or another, like eukaryotic cells or mutations and so on, and many other things. So are we saying that those who claim that language is the result of, uh, of, a, of a transformation of animal language, animal communication, does that mean that uh, they are bringing to the question what I could only call an ideological bias that language has to be the small increment development of what looks similar uh, in, in, in previous uh, uh, animals? First of all, it doesn't look similar. It looks radically different. The most elementary 
uh, uh, features of language have no analog whatsoever in the animal world. Uh, and remember, our closest relatives, the higher apes, are actually about 12 million years separate from us in evolutionary time. Uh, so throughout this, and they've evolved. Our, our common ancestors about 6 million years ago, they've evolved, we've evolved. It's impossible to teach with most intensive efforts. It's impossible to teach the most elementary uh, mimicry of language, even to higher apes. Every effort that's been tried has been a total failure. It's just a common myth. There's no evidence for it. What about, um, I mean, there are claims that animals, uh, parrots and, and chimps, uh, have a rudimentary uh, uh, number of, uh, of words they understand. Uh, you know, your, your namesake, uh, Nim Chomsky, if I, <laughs> Nim, how do you interpret that? It's also true of my dogs. <laughs> they do better. The Nim project was a very interesting project. Very fine scientists involved, number of them, close friends, former students even. Uh, they tried very hard to raise a chimp from infancy about the way a human child is raised, as close to it as they could come. It worked very hard, very seriously. For a long time, they thought they were making progress. Later, when they reviewed their evidence, they take it. They were very careful. They had a video record of everything that happened. When that was analyzed, turned out that it was zero. Uh, the ape was able to do things that made them think, oh, he's asking for a banana. But when they looked at it closely, turned out that the ape was making random signs. Maybe banana was in there, want was in there, a bunch of other things were there, but the investigators were interpreting it as Nim wants a banana. Uh, Nim was just producing signs, which somehow got him what he wanted sometimes. But in fact, it turned out that even the most elementary concept of an object was Nim could never learn. He had a symbol for a apple, but for Nim it meant an apple, the place where an apple was, uh, something was near the apple, uh, anything associated with apples. Concept apple was impossible. So, and this has been true. Um, there are a lot of claims about uh, animal achievements, but where investigators have been willing to provide uh, actual data, primary data, there's nothing that you can't find anything, which is not very surprising. It wouldn't be easy to teach us to behave like apes. Which is not ready to build for it. We didn't evolve to it. I know some people that uh, would be probably pretty easy to teach them how to behave like apes, but that but, but yeah, that, <laughs> that, that may be just a commentary on my friends. Yeah. Uh, Noam, you have uh, brought into scientific thinking the concept of deep structure. I know that affected me many decades ago when I started thinking intellectually about the brain and about the way everything is structured and the concept of deep deep structure you have embedded in uh, intellectual content. Now, you later modified that in terms of language, in terms of minimalism. We talked about that in the earlier parts. But what I'd like you to do is just reflect on the power of the, of the deep structure paradigm in many diverse fields from architecture, music, politics, which I know you've had some association with, certainly cognitive science, uh, this way of thinking of deep structure. Just want to get your sense of it. It's a concept that is uh, ubiquitous in the sciences. So if you look at a, suppose I drink a glass of water. Well, I have no idea what the components of it are. There is an internal underlying structure. Uh, there's hydrogen atoms, oxygen atoms, lots of other things, all put together in a complex form with an underlying rich structure, which I don't see. 
you have to do complex. It took centuries of serious investigation to discover what the internal structure of a water molecule is. Okay, that's deep structure. All over, the, we don't we don't see the nature of things. We see peripheral, superficial aspects of them. Language is the same. We don't see its internal nature. Uh, we see superficial aspects. And deep structure happened to be a technical notion which had a specific meaning. But the general idea that there is a hidden inner form, internal structure, not visible to us, but only can be discovered through intensive inquiry and investigation. That's a ubiquitous concept. And it was understood in the study of language in the 17th and 18th century. It was forgotten. But if you go back to the origins of the scientific revolution, Galileo, Arnaud, Descartes, others, they recognized that there's a inner form to language that we don't see. Famous Port Royal Grammar, 1660. Antoine yeah. and others, it had something comparable to deep structure. They didn't call it that. And they didn't have the means at the time to develop a computational theory that came later. For example, one, one of the examples in the Port Royal Grammar is uh, the sentence, uh, invisible God created the visible world. And they argue that underlying this are three propositions. God is invisible. The world is visible. God created the world. And some kind of operations turn these internal propositions into invisible God created the visible world. It's pretty similar to deep structure. Mm. That's a great example. Uh, the cognitive science revolution uh, transformed, really it's transformed our lives. It certainly transformed understanding uh, how we think uh, in the human sciences and of course all the computer sciences. Your work in linguistics is given credit for at least in part triggering that revolution. Why is that the case? Well, first of all, I hate to be a contrarian all the time, but my own view is that the real cognitive revolution took place in the 17th century, along with the rise of modern science. It's been mostly forgotten, but there were real achievements. Started mentioning some, there are many others. I've done a fair amount of work on that. The second cognitive revolution in the 1950s developed um, actually mainly in Cambridge, Mass, where I happened to be a grad student at the time. Uh, if you look at what constituted it, there were basically two things. Jerry Fodor, late friend, important cognitive science and philosopher, at once quipped that cognitive science is the study of language and vision. Not totally false. Those are the fields that really developed a lot of rich investigation of how visual perception takes place a lot of study of the nature of language. And it was all integrated. We all knew each other. So Dave Moore, who's one of the founders of modern visual science, we were friends and some of his work was kind of modeled on some of the things that were being done in language, but uh, a, lot of in, a lot of integration. So it's, and it's, it's kind of understandable. These are two topics that you sort of know how to study. Other things are very hard to study. Like, for example, the nature of concepts. That's a tough one to try to figure out what is the nature of the concept, tree, river, house, and so on. Actually, here the classical Greece had some answers which have been forgotten. So Aristotle considered this question in a different framework, and his framework was metaphysical. So not what's the meaning of house, but what is a house. It was the cognitive revolution of the 17th century that shifted that from metaphysics to epistemology, to cognition. But in forgetting that, Aristotle asks, what's a house? 
He says it's a combination of matter and form. The matter is the bricks, the timbers, and so on. The form is the design, characteristic use, uh, the intention of the architect, all sorts of mental things. And that's quite correct. Something could look like a house, but not be a house at all. It's used to store books. It's a library. It's used to put horses in. It's a stable. Uh, could be a, a paperweight for a giant. You know What it actually is, you can't tell by its physical character. Well, I think all the terms that are used for us when we talk about the world have that character. They, what they are, what the thing is, is largely a mental construction. And that brings us back to Lila Gleitman's crucial work. All of these concepts must be basically innate, or at least they're, the elements that constitute them must be innate, because a child acquires them on virtually no evidence. Actually, one of Lila's favorite examples was uh, says a young child, very early, says things like, that's not fair. Try to analyze that. <laughs> John Rawls has a huge book on it, The Foundation of Modern Political Science, Justice is Fairness. The concept fair is extremely complex to describe, but a young child has no trouble noticing mm -hmm. that things aren't fair. <laughs> Same with lots of other things. When people talk about the history of modern computer science, uh, programming languages, compiler construction, automata theory, many give your linguistic work credit for the conceptual ideas behind those uh, concepts. What is it about your work in linguistics that has uh, enabled programming uh, to be as accurate as it, it is? I wouldn't. That's much too strong. Um, <laughs> there were, I did work on finite automata theory, which had certain relationships to early programming languages. And there were mutual investigations, cooperative investigations, looking at these contexts. But it's, it's basically forms of formal languages, properties somewhat similar to natural languages. I worked on them in the early 50s, uh, around the period that programming languages were being developed, and the two interact in a number of ways. So if you look at a, a textbook on programming, you'll find things about sometimes called the Chomsky hierarchy, the hierarchy of possible formal languages, which have various analogs in programming theory. They capture some features of natural language, but they also correspond to certain types of automata, linear bounded automata, push down storage automata, standard, they inter interrelate with formal systems that capture some of the properties of language, which is a topic of some interest, but it, it didn't enable programming language. <laughs> I want to mention some um, uh, theories of, of uh, in cognitive science and philosophy that you have um, attacked. I, I don't know of a softer word to accurately describe it and want to just get your reflections on it. After uh, many decades of uh, looking back, um, uh, first is uh, behaviorism. Um, what was it about behaviorism that uh, you found uh, erroneous and, uh, and, and how do you reflect now looking back over the decades? In my view, behaviorism was a radical departure from the sciences. First of all, behaviorism varied, but the form of behaviorism that was pretty much dominant in the period of creation of modern cognitive science was largely Skinnerian behaviorism. It was picked up by uh, Van Quine, one of the most influential philosophers of language. His work like Word and Object uh, based very, uh, very explicitly on operant conditioning, Skinnerian behaviorism. And that was all the rage in Cambridge in the 1950s. It was virtual dogma. 
Skinner's uh, William James lectures came out in the late 40s. The, the book itself, Verbal Behavior, came out about a decade later, but it was what everyone was doing. Well, there were various chips in the armor that began to develop. Some of them were within psychology itself. So George Miller, one of the founders of cognitive psychology, a close friend, I worked closely with him for many years. We published together. Uh, even before this started, he did some crucial experiments which raised serious questions. So, for example, take the sentence, uh, don't John went to the store, any sentence. Uh, the standard theory of per perception of speech was uh, you have a certain guess about the first word, then you have a guess about the second word, the probability that you're right both times decreases, of course. Uh, by the time you get to the last word, it should be very hard to understand in a long sentence. Well, George showed that it's the opposite. Uh, you don't understand the early words until you get to the last word, which means that you're forming the thought in your mind. And the thought in your mind is telling you what those early noises were. By now, there's lots of work on this. Well, that just didn't fit at all with behaviorism. There was very important work in neuroscience by Carl Lashley, his work on serial behavior around 1950. It just totally undercut behaviorism. Showed that there are overall patterns in behavior that simply just don't work anything like the behaviorist models. And nobody looked at that. It was brought to, I found it in the early 50s because it was brought to my attention by an art historian, Shapiro. He said, you might be interested in this. So looked at it, so totally wiped out behaviorism. There was other work going on in European, uh, what was called ethology, comparative biology. Um, the uh, uh, Lawrence, uh, Tinberg, and others, which was foreign to the environment in which cognitive science grew up. The, uh, but the main thing was the work on language that I and others started doing in the early 50s was completely inconsistent with all behaviorist assumptions. And uh, it was just, there was just no connection between them. You couldn't relate them. And then when, Skin, when, I, when Skinner's book was appeared, you could read through it and you could see that it's all hand-waving. There's, there's nothing there. Uh, instantly around that time, even within the behaviorist framework, uh, there were cracks developing. So there was work by some of Skinner's students, incidentally, important work, which showed that animals just didn't behave by these pattern paradigms, that they seemed to be working only if you picked experimental conditions that essentially adapted instinctive behavior. So you can teach a pigeon to play ping pong because pigeons peck, you know, okay. So you can modify the pecking behavior. But basically it was all falling apart from many points of view. And my, my own view was it was a bad mistake from the first place. You don't study a sub, uh, any subject by saying, let's keep to the superficial manifestations and not look at what's going on internally. You want to understand it, you're going to have to look at what's going on internally. You don't see it. You can't do experiments right on it. You have to study it in indirect ways, the way physics, chemistry, biology, every other subject developed. Linguistic relativity, the so-called uh, Whorf hypothesis, where language determines thought in the strong version or at least influences thought in the weak version, that the structure of a language affects the speaker's worldview or cognition and therefore when people have different languages, their perceptions are related to the languages they speak, as opposed to a, uh, a broad a, a human capability. That hypothesis, the Spear-Whorf hypothesis, has been around for 80 or so years. Investigation of it, serious investigation, began in the early 50s. First person to study it was 
Eric Lineberg. We were grad students together, personal friend. He went on to found Biology of Language. But his first work was actually as a student on the Wharf Hypothesis, experimental work. Couldn't find anything. Everything you tried, you got some superficial results, but nothing. Well, it's now 75 years later. There isn't a lot more to say. Uh, <laughs> there's some evidence. Some of the uh, Lila Gleitman, who I mentioned before, uh, carefully analyzed and did experimental work on some of the alleged element, uh, evidence that fell apart. There's a few things around that seem possible, but uh, pickings are very slim. It's, I mean, there's some respects in which it's obviously true. So as Lenneberg pointed out, 75, found 75 years ago, uh, if uh, you study a, a language that we have a distinction be between red or red and orange and pink, say, but there are languages that don't. They, they happen to be studying Hopi, just uses the same word for that spectrum. So he found perfectly predictably that if you use, say, memory text tests, did you ever see that? Did you see this uh, shade of color a minute ago? You'll do better if you have names. So, in a way, the language affects perception, but in such a trivial way that it's of no interest. And there isn't much more than that. Logical positivism, which was the rage in the early 20th century that said that really there are only two kinds of truths and even only two kinds of, uh, of intellectual activities worth pursuing, those that are empirical with the scientific method and those that are purely logical with a deduction. Everything else is basically nonsense. Well, logical positivism was an important movement in the 20s early 30s. By the late 30s, its major uh, figures were drifting away from it. Uh, Carnap, uh, Hempel, others, Quine, just moving away from it. And it, uh, it became influential in linguistics and psychology after it was declining philosophy and declining for good reasons. There were internal critiques. Uh, but uh, it did have a big influence on linguistics through Leonard Bloomfield, who was a strict, saw himself as a strict, he was the major linguist in the early 20th century. He uh, did very good work in many areas, but in this area, he was very much misled uh, by picking up an early form of logical positivism, which was not viable. But uh, so I think it's an important, made important contributions, important residue developed since in other directions. So if you look at Quine, Popper, Carnap, the major figures, the Wittgenstein was one of the totally rejected, and uh, then uh, it just is no longer a coherent, viable movement. What is your view of, of contemporary field or subfield of philosophy of language, uh, which subsumes a, a great deal of what we're talking about and even, even more than that? Uh, what are the categories? What are your reflections on it? Well, I've been a pretty sharp critic of it in book after book. I don't want to go through that. I mean, there is important work, but a lot of it, I think, is seriously misguided. I could go into details if written about it. So for example, take say Quine, who is the Quine and Wittgenstein, two of the leading figures of modern philosophy of language. Both of them accepted that for Quine, who was a strict Skinnerian, language in his words is a complex of dispositions to to respond to present stimuli has nothing to do with language. I mean, and it didn't develop that way, it's not used that way. <laughs> Wittgenstein, the late Wittgenstein, who was interested in language, he was kind of aphoristic, you know, he didn't give a, try to give a organized system. But if you look at his comments on acquisition of language, 
they're strict behaviorists. Uh, you know, his language game is uh, somebody is shown a rock and somebody says rock and imitated. That's how you learned rock. Nothing like that happens. I mean, there's tons of experimental evidence by now, even just observational evidence. And I think, uh, well, there are doubtless major contributions. Uh, some of the, a lot of the work, I think, is off on the wrong track. So for, um, the main contributions, are, I think, have been in semantics. Donald Davidson's work on event semantics has turned out to be very productive and influential. It's picked up by linguists, philosophers, James Higginbotham, Paul Trotsky, others, and it's turned into my view, one of the most promising approaches to the general semantics of language. It's called philosophy. I, I don't know why it's called philosophy. It's basically study, a good, serious study of the semantics of natural language. Analytic philosophy versus continental philosophy. You're classified as an analytic philosopher. You've had some engagements with uh, continental philosophers, famously. What is your reflection on the uh, the dichotomy between them? Is it artificial? Um, how, how do you see going forward? Well, actually, a good deal of my work is on continental philosophy from the 17th through the 19th century. Uh, Descartes, Hume, Locke, uh, on to the philosophers of Humboldt, you know, on through the 19th century. Contemporary continental philosophy is quite different. Uh, I mean, there's work that I find interesting Husserl, number of others, but uh, most of the modern work, it, either I don't understand it or I don't find it very interesting. But, uh, my own background is in what's called analytic philosophy, though I was, as I've just mentioned, uh, I've been rather critical of a lot of the, develop, the ways it's developed, but I think basically on the way to finding serious understanding of the way the mind works, the way the world works. What I'd like to do now, Noam, and I've really been looking forward to this, is to get your quick sense of some of the big questions that we ask on Closer to Truth, the themes that, that are the kind of the core of, uh, of our work over uh, two decades now. And we've asked these questions to all leading uh, scientists, mainly physicists, philosophers, uh, uh, neuroscientists, etc. I, I just want to get your your sense. So we'll start with philosophy of mind, uh, which is a very broad category. But from your point of view, what have been the major issues or the problems in philosophy of mind, and and where have you staked your own personal claims? I don't know how to distinguish philosophy of mind from science of mind. The science, the science and philosophy, were pretty much the same field until the 19th century. Then they, the names diverged, but not in a serious way. So the most serious work in cognitive science, in my view, is a development of a suggestion by Locke, John Locke in the wake of Isaac Newton's discoveries, who showed that uh, the mechanical conception of the nature of the world that was developed in modern science just didn't work. So Locke concluded, he phrased it in his theological framework, I'll drop that, but just as uh, the material world has properties that we cannot comprehend, but that are there, like uh, interaction without contact, so the mind might just be, might let me take it in his theological framework, because it sounds better. Just as God provided matter with properties that we cannot understand, like interaction without contact, so God might have super added to matter, to certain forms of matter, the property of thought, meaning thought is a property of some organized form of matter, whatever matter turns out to be. 
Uh, that's a fundamental insight. And it was developed carefully through the 19th, 18th century by major figures. It culminated in Joseph Priestley's work, famous chemist, philosopher, the distinction wasn't made in those days. Uh, then it was pretty much forgotten. It was rediscovered in the latter decades of the 20th century. It was then considered a radical new idea in philosophy, uh, astonishing hypothesis, a new thesis in biology, actually Locke's suggestion and the work that was done on it. So that's a core part of philosophy of mind, I think, finding out what it is in the structure of the world, whatever the world is constituted of, that has this property of thought. Well, that's the kind of thing we were talking about before. And there are many mysteries there. One of them, by mystery, I mean things in which there's been no progress for millennia. Uh, one question is what we were talking about, the nature of concepts, where to come from, how do people acquire it? Another one is simply what uh, was crucial for Descartes, the fact that our ordinary use of language is constantly innovative, new things that were never said before. They're not random. They're appropriate to situations, not caused by situations. I've called it the creative aspect of language use. Total mystery. Nobody knows where that comes from. Actually, nobody knows anything about voluntary action, but this is a complex case of it. So that's another major problem. Uh, there are other problems about, you can go on, problems about what constitutes thought, what, what the animals do, how's human thought different from the cognition of other organisms. Uh, these are mixtures of philosophy and science, which I don't think divide very clearly. Philosophers are studying some of the more general aspects of what the scientists are doing. And plenty of people just cross the boundaries. Don't, don't pay any attention. Are you committed to a purely uh, materialistic, physicalism uh, uh, approach to anything having to do with, with the mind? Another way to put it is, what is the ontological status of the mental? To be contrarian again, I've always taken exactly the opposite position. In my, as I've argued at some length, there was a concept of matter in the early scientist, scientific revolution. It's called the mechanical philosophy. The world is a complex machine a much more complex and intricate version of what skilled artisans were developing all around Europe at the time. The world is just a far more complex variant of that. Now that was held right through the major part of early modern science. Galileo, Descartes, Newton, Leibniz, Huygens, all the great scientists assumed this. Newton disproved it. He showed that the world is not a machine in this sense. He didn't believe it. He thought it was the most so absurd that nobody with any scientific understanding could possibly believe this. Now, that's why he called his major book Mathematical Principles, not Physical Principles. He said, I don't have a physical theory. All I have is mathematical principles that seem to work. Uh, he was sharply condemned for that, for by Leibniz, other great figures. Well, at that point, the concept of matter disappeared. Matter is just whatever we postulate in our best theories of the world. There's no bounds. If it turns out to be massless particles, okay, it's massless particles. Turns out to, what, whatever turns out to be, that's what it is. But there's no fixed notion of the material or the physical. Now, sometimes philosophers try to hang on to it, uh, say, well, maybe the physical is spatiotemporal. Now we're back to Locke's suggestion. Uh, my thinking does not take place in my feet. It doesn't take place in a tree outside. It takes place up here. So it's spatiotemporally uh, con uh, contained. So therefore, all of mind is, is physical. Okay. Since the word essentially has no meaning, 
just whatever our best theories say. You can say that if you want. But I think the, pro the questions just disappeared. There is no coherent notion of materialism as far as I can see. It's just whatever the sciences come up with as their best explanations, that's materialism. The trend in philosophy of mind in the last decades has been moving away from what is classically called materialism, that everything uh, mental can be reduced in some way in some future science, maybe not for a thousand years, to physical processes in the brain, whether it's at the neuronal level or the interneuronal level or the quantum physical level, but still physical within the brain. And so many philosophers today are moving away from that and say that we'll never be able to explain the qualia, the inner experience that we all have, and that you need to go beyond what is traditionally called physicalism, whether it's panpsychism, where everything has a little bit of, of mental capacity, or some kind of dualism where there's a non-physical reality inter interacting. But there, it, there has been a trend in, in that direction that purely physical explanation of the brain will never fully explain the mental. Well, the problem with that is there is no notion of physical. Actually, this was put very well by fine psychologist Galen Strawson, who is a, does commit a defense psychism. Yes. But he said he was talking about consciousness. He said yeah. this is a problem about consciousness. We all know exactly what it is. Consciousness is what I'm experiencing now. The problem is with the physical. When you talk about reducing consciousness to physical, you know what physical is. Physical is just whatever the sciences say. So consciousness is going to be part of it. Actually, it goes back to Russell pretty much. Uh, and I think that's correct. There is no physicalism. So if whatever's going on in my mind and your mind is in your brains, it's not going on somewhere else. Well, the brains are, if the brain isn't a physical object, I don't know what is. So therefore, it's going on in your brain. It's some sort of process going on in there, not anywhere else. Uh, the rest is just idle talk. But Galen Strawson, who's a very good example, and people can see his videos on Closer to Truth, he's a good friend, um, he would say that you need to have some deeper understanding of, of the, the nature of all physical properties in order to understand how the brain can generate, in some way, the concept of consciousness. You put in the word physical. You have to, as I understand his views, which I think I agree with, you have to have an understanding of the nature of the world in order to find how the mind functions, because the mind is just part of the world, as Locke famously, should be famously, fortunately he's forgotten, but as he pointed out, there's no reason not to regard thinking as a property of organized matter, whatever matter turns out to be. We don't know what it's going to turn out to be. Sure. And I think that's, that is an approach that there's, a, there's an expanded understanding of what reality is that we call matter and something else. But whatever it is, that's the total reality of the world. And there may be things that we totally don't understand that now, whether it's panpsychism or something else. I don't go along with Strawson as far as he does to the panpsychism. Uh, that, his argument for panpsychism is based on a serious point. Can there be what he calls radical emergence? Entirely new properties somehow developing without any elements of them in earlier structures. I think that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in uh, the hydrogen atom which says you're a liquid. Changes take place with other with levels of complexity increasing that bring about entirely new phenomena. So I don't, I don't think that's a strong argument. The critical mass of an atomic bomb is, is a good example where you have uranium-235, a certain, a certain uh, purity of it, and uh, it'll be inert, it'll be radioactive, but you add you know, one more micro 
gram and then you have an atomic bomb because it hits that critical mass. It's a simple analogy, but it's just that everything in nature is like that. Back to you, eukaryotic cells, which I meant before, or water. The properties of water aren't detectable in hydrogen and oxygen. But this is a critical point, and I'm going to push it a little bit further, because with hydrogen and oxygen, we can understand how, when you understand the science of bonding and flow and molecules slipping by one another, that with advanced science, you can, in fact, predict or, or, or reverse engineer from when you know the structure to why that becomes wet, liquid. Now, the question is, is everything about the mind of that same character where eventually science, given as much time as you want, 10,000 years, be able to access it? Or are there aspects of the mental that are forever beyond the purview of science? No more than aspects of motion. Go back to Newton and Leibniz. They They had no problem understanding Newton's theories of gravity. Okay. It was what they described that was unintelligible. We cannot conceive, as Locke said, we cannot conceive of objects interacting in a mechanical fashion. And we can't. It's a fact. Science just gave up the task of trying to. Galileo through Newton and Leibniz, science was trying to develop a picture of an intelligible world that was given up. We don't try to do that anymore. We try to find intelligible theories of the world, like Newton's theory, or the theory of uh, how hydrogen axing molecules yield water. But it's unintelligible. We We have no grasp of what's going on there. We understand the theory, we can follow it, as you say, we predict it. That's now the goal of science for hundreds of years, since basically since Newton, which abandoned the Galilean hope of uh, developing an intelligible world. So uh, can you do that for the mind? No reason why. Maybe we can't, maybe we don't have the intellectual capacity to do it, but that doesn't mean there's no explanation for it. I mean, we're not angels, you know, we're organisms. Our mental capacities have certain scope, certain limits, but uh, no reason to believe that we can understand everything. So in the philosophy of science, would you classify yourself as an anti-realist in the sense that we have uh, access to empirical information, we, we can sense regularities, uh, but there's really no hope of, of understanding reality as it is qua reality in itself. No, I don't. We can understand it to the extent that humans are capable of understanding things. Uh, we are, uh, I don't know about you, but I have no grasp of I can follow the theory that explains how hydrogen and oxygen end up feeling like a liquid, but I don't have any grasp of it. I can follow the theory, okay? And that's the way science works. Uh, I have no grasp of a field of force, let's say. I understand it can work with vector spaces and so on, but that doesn't give me a, a... what Tom Nagel calls a feeling of what it is. Uh, We don't have a feeling of that about anything. But uh, we can do the best we can to try to find theories that explain the properties that we discover. Then we can understand the theories, maybe get better ones. Can we get good enough ones to explain, say, elements of consciousness? You never know. You can, you know, as you learn and study more, you find more. Then you find more problems. Not science. It's like hill climbing. You climb a hill, you think you've gotten somewhere. You look up and there's a big (laughs) It's all the whole history of science. No, one of the questions we love to ask on Closer to Truth is is a two-word question, a two-word sentence. Uh, What exists? 
And by that, what we mean are what are the minimum number of non-reducible categories that you need to explain all of reality? Science has its own answers, partial answers. So they might say elementary particles. Then you pick up a quantum theory journal and you find a symposium of great scientists about what is a particle, all kind of views. Basically, we know some things about it, but we really don't know what a particle is. Okay, so you go on to the next step. I don't think these are questions that can have answers. They have answers, but only answers that you move towards as you learn more. How far you'll go, there's never any way to know. Along the way, you cast aside problems as ones we can't deal with. The way science after Newton uh, cast aside the problem of motion. You go back to the 17th century, they had a concept of hard problem. Today, the fashion is to say that the hard problem is consciousness. 17th century, what they called the hard problem was motion. Problem was never solved. It was abandoned. And then the, uh, the last question, which uh, in one sense is the very first question that we love to ask is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there anything at all? And, and the question I want to ask you, is that a legitimate question to ask? Because we ask it, but one of the claims is that th that's not a question that you, you should be able to ask. Well, the best answer to that that I heard was by a great philosopher, personal friend, you know, Sidney Morgenbesser. <laughs> Sid, Sid was asked that once and he said, look, if there was nothing, you'd be kvetching about that. <laughs> kvetching, uh, in terms of our common ancestors, means complaining. <laughs> I learned that from my grandmother. <laughs> No, and this has been an absolute delight. I wish we could go on forever. You have made such contributions, not just to linguistics, but to, to ways of thinking, uh, challenging us in linguistics, certainly in, in political science, even if some of us may disagree with some of the things that you say in all categories. Uh, you, you've had a tremendous uh, contribution to intellectual thought, to, to the, the enjoyment and the appreciation of uh, reality over these seven decades for you, certainly my entire lifetime. On a personal basis, it's, it's great to experience this real interaction with you now. As I said, we met at MIT very briefly 40 years ago. Um, so it's just a, a great pleasure for me. And I, and I look forward to another session uh, 70 or so years from now. We'll discuss some of the same things and, 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 and see how you've progressed over that time. We'll have the same mysteries, I think. <laughs> all the best, all the best. Thank you. Good to be with you. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.